3: And I'm Steve Kerwood, Oceanside at the U.N. Climate Summit in Cancun, Mexico, where delegates from more than 190 nations hope to find some means of agreement to fight global warming.
2: Cancun will be successful if parties compromise, if they make sure that in the process of getting what they want, they allow others to leave with what they need. What the world needs now is an end to greenhouse gases. One scientist says we have plenty of time to prepare, but we need to worry now.
0: What matters to climate change is the total greenhouse gas emissions of the planet over the next hundred years. The bad news is that, of course, you have to ultimately drive greenhouse gas emissions to nothing to fix the problem.
3: Those stories and more from the U.N. Climate Summit in Cancun, Mexico, just ahead right here on Living on Earth. Kate Darcee Aki. Stay with us.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
3: From the U.N. Climate Summit in Cancun, Mexico, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
2: And I'm Bruce Gellerman. Waves crash along Cancun's famed beaches. It's a timeless backdrop to the climate negotiations where delegates from around the world are racing against time. This is the 16th year the United Nations has convened its Conference of Parties, the meeting designed to hammer out an agreement to deal with greenhouse gases and global warming.
3: It's the warm waters off the Yucatan Peninsula and the Atlantic Ocean that help drive tropical storms. Five years ago, Hurricane Wilma ripped through here. The monster storm, packing 175-mile-an-hour winds, did billions in damage and destroyed dozens of lives. This year's Atlantic tropical storm season just ended. With 12 full-blown hurricanes, it's the second highest on modern record. The music is
2: hot as climate negotiators, members of NGOs, and journalists cool off after a long day of meetings, gathering in a bar at the Moon Palace Complex, the mega hotel where the climate
3: talks are taking place. This year, climate delegates in Cancun need to demonstrate at least some progress after last year's disastrous meeting in Copenhagen. At that summit, what seemed to be a done deal, a legally binding agreement to cut greenhouse gases, came undone producing just a last-minute voluntary accord brokered by the largest emitting nations. This year's hurricane season may have been the calm before the storm. Despite intense security measures at the U.N. climate summit, Navy
2: ships patrolling offshore, federal police, and ID scrutiny... A group of Mexican workers, recyclers, demanding an end to waste incinerators and landfills which emit greenhouse gases, were able to organize a demonstration inside the convention hotel.
5: Incineration, a false solution. Landfills, false
6: solution.
3: Less dramatic, but no less emphatic, was Marcella Jack, who advises Micronesia in the climate talks.
6: What I see out of this conference, I think, is just more talk on process, only process, but very little on content. What needs to be done is we need to have a fair, ambitious and binding legal document that binds all big countries and small countries alike to take serious cuts in their emissions so that we can save our planet.
2: But the talks this year in Cancun are not expected to lead to an all-encompassing treaty. Christiana Figueres is the new executive secretary of the U.N. Climate Convention. She says what's needed now after last year's near disaster at the Copenhagen summit is incremental progress. Cancun will be successful if parties compromise, if they make sure that in the process of getting what they want, they allow others to leave
6: with what they need.
3: One positive sign, contentious rhetoric between the world's two largest emitters of climate-changing gases, the U.S. and China, seems to have calmed, at least for the moment. China's lead negotiator, Su Wei, is director general of China's climate department and a veteran of the rough-and-tumble and and often troubled U.S.-China talks. What can come out of Cancun this year? What can happen here?
6: For Cancun, it's not the end of the, uh, the game. It's, it's uh, only a part, uh, a very important uh, step in, in the long process. Of course, uh, we would uh, hope that since this is a global challenge, we need uh, active policies and actions from all parties, and we also hope the U.S. would uh, honour its, uh, its commitments in terms of uh, reductions of its emissions of greenhouse gases
2: leading the united states delegation in cancun the first week is jonathan pershing pershing says the united states will deliver on its pledge to reduce greenhouse gases by 17 percent by 2020
7: the president has also made and we continue to affirm the commitment that we made in copenhagen last year we are not moving away from that clearly the next steps of implementing that are going to have to go through congress through regulation through executive order We'll work on all of those tracks, all of those avenues at home to implement those programs and meet that commitment.
3: And in what may be a significant breakthrough, the U.S. and China have reportedly agreed on a mechanism for measuring and verifying cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, something the U.S. had insisted on and China had resisted. The bilateral deal may have helped save the multinational U.N. process.
2: Jennifer Morgan is director of the Climate and Energy Program at the World Resources Institute.
0: You know, what happens here, in some ways, the stakes are even higher than they were in Copenhagen because in some ways this is a second chance, at least, to get something moving forward. And if you can't get it done on the second chance, I I don't know if you get a third try.
3: The Cancun climate talks now enter week two. Marcella Jack from Micronesia says, with just a week left, the world is watching and waiting for action.
6: We've talked too much too much talk. The only action that we're seeing is the sea level rising and the temperature heating up. This is about survival. It's not about carbon credits. This is about survival.
2: Scientists now warn the risk of abrupt or irreversible climatic shift is growing, and the evidence keeps mounting.
3: To talk about the latest research, we turn now to Professor Daniel Schrag. He studies climate change at Harvard and directs the University Center for the Environment. He's also a member of President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology.
0: You know, there's a nice study that really put all of this together that came out this year from the National Academy. And basically, tripling atmospheric carbon dioxide levels, which we're likely to do in the next 100 to 150 years, is really Unprecedented, and there's all sorts of things that are going to have difficulty adapting to that, including human society. We're going to see devastation of species. Something like 40% of biodiversity is ultimately threatened today because it's happening at so fast a rate that animals can't migrate. The other thing that came out in this National Academy report is the idea that fundamentally what matters to climate change is the total greenhouse gas emissions of the planet over the next 100 years some of the climate policies that are focused on getting a 10 or 20 percent reduction in the next 10 years or 20 years. And the bigger scale of things, actually, that doesn't matter so much. The bad news is that, of course, you have to ultimately drive greenhouse gas emissions to nothing to fix the problem.
3: What about the permafrost? There was a study uh, that was reported on, I think, in the journal Science on the melting of the permafrost that's uh, under the Arctic Ocean. What did you think of that study?
0: Well, I think um, that study and many others similar to it have pointed over the last many years to the amplifying factor of the permafrost melting, which leads to lots of soil carbon, both in the form of methane and in the form of carbon dioxide being released to the atmosphere and providing a positive feedback to the burning of fossil fuels. Another way to think about this is that we've started the ball rolling with greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels, and now the natural carbon system is going to take over. And the big question is, how fast does the methane and CO2 get released?
3: So what other studies from this past year looked into feedback loops from natural systems that might amplify climate change?
0: Well, one very important change that is continuing to occur is the melting of Arctic sea ice. And the big story this year was that we didn't set a new record in terms of the area of Arctic sea ice. But if you actually look at the images of the Arctic ice cap, what you see is that the area of very thick ice that's there perennially year after year was almost half of what it had been in 2007. So that even though there was a lot of ice cover, the actual permanent very thick ice had decreased significantly.
3: Now, Arctic ice is already in the ocean, so if it melts, it doesn't raise the sea level. What about the ice that's on the ground, places like Antarctica and Greenland?
0: When we project sea level changes due to melting of ice, we tend to be extremely conservative. And so, for example, in the latest IPCC report... What they did was they essentially assumed that the current rate of melting from Greenland would persist unchanged through the century, and that leads to only 5 centimeters of sea level rise from melting of Greenland over the entire century. Now, if you were actually doing a risk analysis, what you might do is perhaps assume that as the Earth warmed, the ice would melt in proportion to the warming. If you make that simple assumption, you end up with the result that was published this year showing that, in fact, a better estimate of sea level rise over the century is about one to two meters. So three to six feet of sea level rise threatens every coastal city in the world. It's a really big deal.
3: Let's talk about drought. What have we learned in the past year about uh, the prospect of drought as a function of climate change?
0: Climate change is likely to bring more stress on both natural ecosystems and human society that will make dealing with droughts more and more difficult. For example, high-altitude glaciers all over the world in the tropics are melting at exponentially increasing rates. And since they're the source for a lot of water and very important strategic rivers all over the world, It means that when you have a drought because of meteorological conditions and you don't have the backup of mountain-fed streams and rivers, it makes dealing with that drought all the more difficult.
3: What about food? We're going from 6 billion, well, actually almost 7 billion people, to some 9 billion in 2050 or so. How will climate impact our ability to feed ourselves?
0: One of the interesting studies that's come out over the last few years suggests crops have a very complex relationship to not just rainfall, but actual temperature. For mild temperature increases, yields increase a little bit, and then they cross a threshold and drop very dramatically, and it's a nonlinear effect. A nice example is 2003, when Europe had that devastating heat wave, Mm. and crop yields dropped by about 30%. That 2003 temperature is likely to be the average temperature 100 years from now, for summer. And there's a real question we have about plant physiology. Do we think our ability to genetically engineer plants and selectively breed them, will we be able to find crops that can produce high yields in a warmer climate? And currently, there's some research that suggests that no. In fact, there are real physiological limits to plants because of the cycling of water through their their stems that may fundamentally limit the productivity. And we may see a big drop-off in food production
3: Now, of course, you're close to the White House being on President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. How is the science that we've been discussing being presented in that setting? And what feeling do you have that the president gets this?
0: I have been in a meeting with the president where myself and a number of other climate experts briefed him directly. And it was very clear that the president does get it. He does understand how serious a problem this is. What he is struggling with during a rather severe recession is the political problem of how to get the American public concerned about acting on climate change when they're really worrying about their pocketbooks. And that's a very difficult problem. I don't envy him. But in terms of the science, in terms of the ultimate impact,
3: he does understand it. Harvard professor Daniel Schrag, thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Earlier this week, community members gathered in downtown Cancun to sing and pray in support of the U.N.
3: Climate Summit. Just ahead, a new scheme to save forests in Borneo. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. And I'm Steve Kerwood in Cancun, Mexico, at the United Nations Climate Talks. While nations bob, weave, and delay about many issues here, agreement in one arena is advancing smartly. A way to keep carbon locked up in trees. It's called RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation.
7: The RED issue, I think as many people have been
3: following it, is very, very significant. That's Deputy U.S. Delegation Chief Jonathan Pershing, who says the U.S. is already committed to provide a billion dollars for a 50-nation partnership to implement REDD. If you combine the land use change and the forests, they
7: account respectively for a, a better part of a quarter of total greenhouse gas emissions. It's become a significant issue, a significant opportunity. In these negotiations.
2: Red is also a major opportunity for conservationists who for decades have been trying to save the world's rainforest with little success. Under Red, owners of forests would be paid to stop deforestation and keep the carbon in their trees. The Nature Conservancy, perhaps the world's richest environmental organization, is already trying to get Red going on the ground. It's piloting a new approach in Borneo that could provide a template for the rest of Indonesia and other countries as well. From eastern Borneo, living on Earth, Ingrid Lobet reports.
8: Borneo. Indonesians call it Kalimantan. Tropical forest, iconic for its orangutans and its seeming endlessness. Coal mines and oil palm trees have flattened much of it, but you can still see some if you get up high enough. Irianto with the Nature Conservancy, climbs the rungs of a fire tower.
6: Kalimantan uh, in the past is just almost like this all of the island but now only in the
5: in the remote area
8: we can find few like this far below a blur of brown gray swings from tree to tree monkeys
6: if brown or red is then it's the very rare one
8: for years, the Nature Conservancy tried to protect forests like this one by buying them. But even a group with a billion-dollar budget can only afford to buy a fraction of the forest. It's a kind of triage. Conservancy biologists pore over satellite photos of disappearing forest. they know most can't be saved.
9: I think, you know, the mentality that we, the conservation community, has had for a long time is is sort of this painful process of prioritizing only the most critically endangered places.
8: That's Bronson Griscom, a climate specialist with the Nature Conservancy. Once wildlife experts identify the very most endangered places, they try to protect them, for example, by making them into a park.
9: And that is and remains a core strategy for the Nature Conservancy. But, you know, the world is not going to be one big park, and we recognize that.
8: Even when land is protected as national park, these parks often exist only on paper. Hungry people, sometimes people who were displaced to create the parks, in the first place farm and hunt inside the parks. Plantation companies build roads. Park rangers are few and underpaid. Faced with this reality, the Nature Conservancy made a major break with the past. It began working with logging companies. Griscom says conservationists figured out a lot more animals survive in a timber concession than a forest converted to agriculture.
9: The difference between a well-managed forest logged using sustainable, well-thought-out logging practices that that are designed to mimic natural disturbance in a converted forest, converted to some kind of plantation like oil palm, is, is night and day. I mean, you're talking about a system that is that is maintaining almost all of the biodiversity on the one hand, as compared to a system that's maintaining very little of it.
8: The Nature Conservancy says, just come take a look. So we travel to the end of the road, and from there take a boat to Long Pai, an indigenous Dayak village. Jonas Lacan, a community leader, welcomes visitors into a traditional raised house. There's a computer and maps of the village's traditional forests. Just a few years ago, Lacan recounts, this village was locked in a conflict with a well-known timber company that was clear-cutting.
6: They cut down our fruit trees. They even cut down the trees where we keep our bees.
8: At a certain point, the community got fed up with the company and took away the keys to the bulldozers in protest. This cutting was contrary to the way they'd use the forest for hundreds of years.
6: We held a protest and halted their production. We shut them down for three years.
8: And for three full years there was a standoff. Villagers and logging company didn't talk. The Nature Conservancy got involved, and people in Long Pai Village began to organize and then negotiate with the timber company. They won the right to monitor tree felling, and the company agreed to avoid cutting in certain areas.
6: With TNC's assistant for mediation, we took the company back. Before the conflict, they cut down any kind of timber they wanted. Now we monitor their activities and they cannot take any tree less than two feet in diameter. That's our way of conserving our forest. Because if we cut the small ones, we won't have any more trees left.
8: So, resolution. And now several people have filled Jonas Lacan's living room and they want to say why this forest is crucial for people who live here.
7: Everything we do, we take from the forest. Potatoes, vegetables, sago palm, rattan. You can gather them and even get enough to sell them.
5: To me, the forest is like my car, because I can get wood to make my boat from the trees there. That's why we care so much about our forest, because it's like our transportation. We're very
10: careful about which trees we cut down. In fact, we only cut down trees when we need to build our boats or our houses because we depend on the trees for our bees.
8: At the mention of bees, several people have something to say. Honey is our sugar.
5: We mix it in water
6: and drink it. kan kebutuhan, kepentingan banyak orang. Sementara kami ada dalam lingkungan itu sendiri. It's so much easier for people who don't depend on the forest. They can just make decisions from
8: afar. But for us who depend on it, if the forest is gone, what will we do? The villagers say they're satisfied now with the timber company and the logging is more sustainable. The Nature Conservancy is trying to build a replicable model based on experiences like this one in Long Pi. They're hoping to build a model for all of Borneo or even the whole country, a model for keeping carbon out of the air, having communities benefit, and protecting forest life at the same time. To understand how, remember that as part of international climate talks, richer countries are pledging billions of dollars to poorer nations to help them develop cleanly so they can leapfrog the dirty industry of the last century. Billions of dollars are being committed to preserving forests and the carbon within them to address climate change. These billions dwarf the interest the world has ever shown in rainforest protection until now. Again, The Nature Conservancy's Bronson Griscom.
9: You know, you're really talking about financing for forests all over the place and level of financing that would generate national-scale reductions, a substantial decrease of the total deforestation across a country. Instead of dealing with sort of this triage approach where it's like, oh my gosh, we have to prioritize a few spots, you know, and just go after those, you know, it's really a much bigger scale.
8: In fact, the Nature Conservancy sees international climate finance as the last big opportunity for tropical conservation. But for carbon money to actually change the game, village-level efforts like the one in Long Pai must be scaled up to whole country reductions in carbon emissions. In this area of Borneo, that cannot be done without timber companies because they lease 40 percent of the land. So the Nature Conservancy is approaching them one by one to get them to improve their practices. It's an approach some environmental groups would find questionable. Red splinters spike up like daggers from a fresh tree stump. And swiftly, a 240-horsepower caterpillar bulldozer drags the log, racking the trees along the way. Finally, Bulldozer and Log arrive at the logging road, a muddy gash. Probably 80 feet across. 60 feet of road, another 10 feet of pile. When it rains, these roads pour silt into the streams. This is Balian River Timbers' concession. It's been clear-cutting. But the man in charge here, Pak Totok, instead of seeming defensive seems dismayed.
3: As a forester, this makes me very sad. My conscience wants more sustainable foresting. In the future, we will keep learning to do things better.
8: Do things better because Balayan River Timber and the Nature Conservancy are coming up with less destructive ways of logging. using engines much smaller than bulldozers. Think of this as no-gash logging. Again, Bronson Griscom.
9: With this system, you are essentially sliding the, the logs along a very narrow skid trail that requires no bulldozer. So in the spirit of small is beautiful, we have a much smaller machine. It's an engine. How much, do you know how much horsepower?
6: 22. 22 22 horsepower.
9: And then a bulldozer would be how much?
6: 300. 300. 200 200. to 300.
9: So, you've got an engine that is 10 times smaller, and that is powering a big spool with a metal cable on it, and it's just a very simple device.
8: This cable winch system uses one-tenth the fuel of logging with bulldozers. It's low-key enough that one guy is riding a log on its slow path uphill as if it's a surfboard. Smaller engines mean fewer emissions. And fewer roads mean fewer cut trees, more carbon left in the forest. The Nature Conservancy is now working with eight of the 13 timber companies who own rights in this district. One of them recently won FSC, or Forest Stewardship Council Certification. Here again is the Conservancy's Nawa Irianto. In this plot, we still can see, let's say, one, two, three, four,
6: five, six, seven big trees. Means per hectare, there are still seven big trees. It's still a healthy forest.
8: Irianto is showing off a forest that still has large trees, even though it was logged. This selective logging is a middle path between clear-cutting and roping off the forest. If forests are harvested sustainably, they have the potential to sequester more carbon than if they're simply left alone. The bulldozer logging path, too, is already growing over. That's because the operator left small hills, like giant speed bumps, every 20 yards. You've built a berm here so that when it rains, the water is not yes. going to flow down the skid road. Yes, yes. And then the water run that way
6: slowly, slowly and slowly, and, and not heavy material down to the river.
8: Nawa Irianto is the one who does much of the work of persuading timber operators here to adopt these progressive practices. He's perennially sunny and caffeine-charged and happy to explain.
7: You know, usually people... Usually there is resistance when they encounter an environmental organization because most nonprofits are all about advocacy, but once they see we have an economic approach and that there will be benefits to certification because they will get a premium price and they can see nearby another company got certified, it's easier for us to convince the owners to move forward with certification.
8: Certified lumber can fetch three and a half times the price of non-certified. As part of the certification, this company also has an inspector now, a tree guardian. His name is Bissam. How about some of your guys that you have working out here, don't they say, hey, can I take this one? This one's good.
5: Yeah,
10: they say that sometimes, but I forbid them from cutting the tree. I say, no, you can't. Because this is a protected tree. If you want to cut a tree, do it in your own village, on land owned by your community. You can do whatever you want there, but not here.
8: Bissam is part of the new face of Indonesia and many other developing countries, well-educated young professionals who want sustainable development. And later, in the timber camp barracks where he sleeps, Bissam says not just his education, but things he's witnessed also make him yearn for forest protection.
10: There are floods now, and there didn't used to be. My own home was destroyed by a flood. My house was destroyed because of deforestation means forests cannot absorb rainwater anymore.
8: But if the Nature Conservancy hopes to lower forest carbon emissions across this whole district in eastern Borneo, it must work not just with logging companies. It'll also have to work closely with government at several levels. Government controls who gets to do what with land. Private ownership of land in Indonesia is practically unknown. Government slates different tracts for different uses. So the Nature Conservancy is making itself a presence right inside government offices
5: working directly with them so we come to their office they come to our office transferring knowledge and to show to them like the whole world is looking on them
8: that's Fakhriz al-Nasher he's the nature conservancy's main government liaison in the region Nasher says you wouldn't believe the impact it has on local officials when they get access to modern land use tools like satellite maps and simulations
5: if you can imagine like this, Pupati, they had the number one person in this district. If he, if he come to his office room and then he see his area, oh, this is, this is the, the forest that I got, and then he can play with that. If I do this, if I change this, what will be the impact, what will be the economic gains? And then he knows like what kind of decision-making he's going to make and how that will impact to his own people.
8: Nasher wants to show local officials that conservation forestry can pay.
5: We need to put more options to the forest. You know, we need to put that it's not only palm oil conversion that the most viable economic for these areas, but there are more
8: than that. What the Nature Conservancy hopes to do is contract with logging companies and other industries across the district to lower their carbon emissions. In exchange, they'll be paid. The initial money to pay them will come from donors like France and Norway. Eventually, the emissions reductions become a commodity that can be sold by a special Indonesian board set up for that purpose. This effort provides a crucial first-of-its-kind link between a local project and a national government's promise to reduce emissions. The Nature Conservancy's efforts in Indonesia are well known and often cited by Indonesian officials. The whole project is still very much in the early stages. No contracts signed, no carbon credits sold. But the group's hope is that it has found a way to protect forest and the amazingly diverse life within it. If enough of that life is left there, the warm, wet forests here can regenerate, absorbing more of the carbon human beings send out. Nature, then, helping to save us from ourselves. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet.
3: Just ahead, the promise of red may be big, but all that cash is attracting the attention of organized crime and carbon cowboys. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway, for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
3: From the Cancun Climate Summit, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood,
2: And I'm Bruce Gellerman. Asked why he robbed banks, infamous bank robber Willie Sutton reportedly quipped, because that's where they keep the money.
3: Well, if Sutton were alive and thieving today, you might find him in a forest, because that's where trees store trillions of tons of carbon, potentially worth billions of dollars. The UN mechanism known as RED is designed to put a price on forest carbon, so the owners have an incentive to keep trees standing instead of cutting them down. Already there's some $4 billion for red projects on the table, and that could increase to $25 billion a year if climate negotiators can agree on how to implement and monitor red.
2: David Stewart is a carbon crime buster. He investigates natural resources corruption with the London-based watchdog group Global Witness, and he's attending the UN Climate Summit.
11: It's the kind of area you would think about investing in if you were an organized criminal. There's certainly organized crime looking at... Red as a potential market to become engaged in. There's going to be a lot of money coming in from the climate change process, and a lot of the places in which the money is moving into us countries with serious corruption risks, with poor law enforcement, poor regulations, it's easy to move in and move money around and to manipulate the system to take advantage.
2: So, if you were a nefarious person and wanted to take advantage of the proposed red schemes, the schemes to protect trees and and keep their carbon stored and locked in there. How
11: might you do that? I'd be particularly interested in countries that don't have clear land tenure, where ownership of the forest land is unclear, in which it's very easy to manipulate land ownership, and so it's who owns the land is going to own the resource. And we now have carbon as a commodity, which people are looking at and is now far more valuable how much money are we talking about? They're talking 15 to 20 billion dollars a year within the next five, ten years. So it's really where the money is. There's a lot of money in forest protection. It's considered one of the more viable climate change solutions, so there's a lot of investment going into it. There's a lot of money being put up by many donor countries, by large multilateral institutions, all looking at various ways of investing in forest protection, because forests store a lot of carbon, so they're an essential key plank to any climate change solution.
2: Now, there have already been cases
11: where people have tried to
2: corrupt the system, and and they've succeeded in some cases.
11: There's reports of carbon cowboys moving into Papua New Guinea, trying to manipulate the system to take ownership of land or to have local landowners sign over their carbon rights, and in some cases through the threats of violence. There are reports in Papua New Guinea of the Office of Climate Change issuing carbon credits, even though there was no legislation in place. There's an investigation into some British-based companies that are looking at entering into agreements with governments over ownership of the carbon or the ability to trade the carbon on international markets, and there are reports of bribes being paid, of not fair prices being paid for the carbon and for people taking advantage of of weak governance systems. So are there international laws against this? Do we have a system for monitoring it and for punishing people? This stage we don't. Uh, It's mostly done on the voluntary carbon market. So all of this activity that is going on now is people getting in early in preparation for the big money that's coming so there isn't any mechanism that can monitor it that can ensure that it's being done according to any international standards because there are no international standards at this point and it's an issue that we in Global Witness are advocating further involvement of law enforcement agencies at the beginning in helping to design the system so that there aren't loopholes that this, the system is implemented in a way that it can be easily enforced rather than trying to fix it up after it's too late. So is it possible that this conference will come
2: up with a mechanism, a red mechanism, to save the carbon in trees, but that when nefarious types and and people with less than noble motives move in, that nothing will happen, that there will be no stored carbon and the money will
11: just disappear? It's quite possible. There's a genuine push by many to get a good deal here, At these climate change talks in which there will be a strong regime to protect the forests but there are also many other vested interests involved in this process looking for a a deal on forest protection that isn't necessarily in the interest of the climate but is in their own vested interests. so there's a push by the logging industry to protect forests for the benefit of logging not for the benefit of the climate there's a push to provide subsidies to the plantation industry. If there's a lack of safeguard in the agreement that we come up with, it may well end up subsidising palm oil plantations. And particularly scary is that it may provide an incentive to actually chop down natural forests and replace it with palm oil plantations. It's the lack of these sorts of safeguards that undermine the environmental integrity of the agreement. So how close are they to
2: building in the safeguards that you'd like to see?
11: We have some relatively strong language around the safeguards, but in terms of actual implementation, there's a lot of weak language, and that's the really important issue that we have to get right at these climate change talks. Well, David, thank you
2: very, very much. Really appreciate
11: it. You're welcome. Thank you.
2: David Stewart is with the anti-corruption monitoring group Global
11: Witness.
3: with the threat of corruption, there's another risk of the forest carbon protection scheme called REDD, the displacement of peoples who have traditionally lived there. More than 350 million people around the world live in or near forests, and while there are now successful pilot efforts to mediate the tensions between various commercial interests and forest dwellers, climate negotiators have yet to agree on language to protect forest community rights. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj has our story, and she begins her report on the island of Sumatra in Indonesia.
1: Saruha is a community leader of the village of Rokan Hulu on the island of Sumatra. On a cloudy day, he stands on a hill on the outskirts of the village and waves his hand toward a vast expanse of trees.
4: In the past, all of this land belonged to the people.
1: He says the land used to be everything for the villagers, a source of food, a source of building materials, where future farm plots would support generations to come. But in the 90s, when the forestry ministry wrote the land into a concession for a pulpwood company, it became the stage for a tragic
6: conflict.
1: Saruha says the deal denied villagers access to even a small slice of the forest. They protested by cutting down pulpwood trees. The company PTSSL, a supplier for the paper giant April, had the police arrest the protesters. Tensions rose, and during a meeting with company officials, chaos broke out. Villagers threw rocks, and Saruha says the company's security guards started beating villagers with sticks covered in nails.
6: Dan saya kebetulan
4: Everyone was running in different directions to save their lives. I ran to a pickup truck, and 30 people got on. We took off, and the company's employees came chasing after us in another car. We got away, and a few days later, we found two dead bodies in a nearby pond.
1: He says another bruised body turned up later in the forest. Three village women became widows, including Rosita, the young mother of three boys. I don't know exactly why my husband died, but I know he died here. It's very sad and very hard because he was the leader of this family. He struggled for the land because the land feeds his children. The head of PTSSL, Pohan, says his employees didn't kill anyone and didn't do anything wrong, but that he gave Rosita and the other widows the equivalent of about $2,000 out of compassion. The local police chief Ansori claims Rosita's husband and his friend fell into the pond and drowned because they couldn't swim, and the third man died from exhaustion as he ran through the forest. But Nurholis, an investigator with Indonesia's Independent Human Rights Commission, says the incident from beginning to end violated basic human rights. The central government didn't take the villagers' land claims seriously and didn't mediate a solution. The police didn't do their job. The bodies were marked with signs of torture, but autopsies were never conducted. And the case, he says, is far too common in Indonesia.
6: I worked at the National Commission for
5: Human Rights for more than two years, and I visited every single province in Indonesia. And there have always been conflicts in the forests of every single province.
1: In Indonesia, 65 million people live in and near forests. Most of them, like the villagers of Rokanhulu, have no official rights to the land they consider theirs. In the eyes of the forestry ministry, they're squatters occupying a national resource. And Indonesia is not alone. Governments own about 75% of the world's forests. Less than 10% legally belong to communities. At climate talks in Cancun, Mexico, with the eyes of the world now on red or forest protection as a way to fight climate change, the stakes have been raised, and many worry a final red agreement won't do enough to protect people.
4: I think red without rights guarantees is potentially a disaster.
1: Peter Riggs works for the Ford Foundation. He says the language that will determine which course red takes is being written now in Cancun and could affect generations to come.
4: If red proceeds in a top-down way where governments reassert control over forested areas, and in many places the only way they can reassert that control is through the militarization of the forest, basically sending in troops to kick people out of places that they've traditionally lived, uh, in order to secure the carbon benefits of red, that is a social disaster. But If RED were to move in such a way that community rights were guaranteed and in fact led to a uh, reduction in forest conflict, then RED could be a very positive thing.
1: Right now, the current RED negotiating text mentions support for the rights of indigenous and local communities, but Tom Goldtooth, the executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network and a member of the Diné and Dakota tribes, wants specifics.
12: We're not just asking for right to participation. We're asking right to be involved in the decision-making processes. We're not just a stakeholder uh, in the North. Uh, You know, these were were our lands. We're the original peoples of the Americas.
1: Goldtooth says he doesn't want to see his indigenous brothers and sisters in tropical countries lose their land and way of life. And key to securing their rights under red are four words— Free prior informed consent. Peter Riggs says that provision is controversial in Cancun.
4: Because it essentially would give communities veto power over uh, projects in their area. And not all governments are willing to give communities that kind of power.
1: Bolivia is one of the few that are willing. Chief Negotiator Pablo Solón not only wants to put in more language on community rights on red, he wants to take out market incentives. No trading carbon credits and no allowing polluters to offset emissions by paying others to protect forests.
11: We think that it's crucial to protect and preserve forests. And we think that we should protect forests through public funds. What we don't agree is that you you will use a very good and very noble cause in order to promote something that only will worsen things, that is, market mechanisms that will commodify, at the end, the forests and nature. That is what we don't support. We have said it very clearly.
1: Because the UN climate negotiations require all countries to be on board before agreement can be made, Bolivia could prevent a red agreement from being finalized. Tom Goldtooth says stopping an agreement that doesn't include stronger guarantees for forest communities would be a good thing.
12: You know right now the the a lot of the movers and supporters of red here are saying, "What well, trust the process that there will be safeguards but we just need to move forward. We can't do that because history has shown that uh, often very often in these type of developments uh under the economic paradigms that we have right now our our local communities are very often uh, you know they end up dead, you know.
1: Weak land rights for forest peoples in some tropical countries aren't just a concern for negotiators in Cancun right now. They could make it tough to get red going, even if an agreement comes through next week.
4: Everybody assumes that the private sector will want to rush into RED uh, once it's set up as a global mechanism. Uh, My conversations with private investors say that they are extremely wary about RED, and the reason that they're wary about it is because they don't want to get involved in a situation where there are land conflicts, and they have not only um, financial risk, but real reputational risk associated with that.
1: For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Cancun, Mexico. Mm
2: Government representatives, environmentalists, and educators are among the 13,000 people from around the globe who are attending the Cancun Climate Summit. We asked a few of them what needs to be accomplished at the meeting.
1: My name is Christine McRae, and I'm from Canberra in Australia. I'm with the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts. I would be very happy if, at the end of COP16... There was a decision taken by all the countries present here that education on climate change should be continued and that there is increased gender balance in education on climate change so girls and boys get the same access to education because educating women in climate change is really important. They're the mothers, they're the sisters in this world and they educate their families and their communities, particularly in developing countries.
6: I'm Chaz Misha. I'm from Tanzania Forest Conservation Group. I would say climate change is happening, and um, is real, and we have to do something. And um, I won't expect um, countries to have common agreement because of the different histories across, across the globe. So at the end of the day, actually, uh, countries have to, to, to think how are they going to address climate change at the, at national level, at local level.
3: On the next Living on Earth, we travel deep into the jungle of the Yucatan Peninsula, where Mayan forest people work the land and harvest chicle, gum, from 500-year-old trees. The
6: way they extract this gum is it represents their traditions and their culture, a part of supporting their families.
3: Saving forests and an ancient culture, next time on Living on Earth.
2: We leave you this week in the Yucatan Peninsula at a Nihito or collective farm. This song is for you,
6: visitante. Maya song.
2: San Antonio Tuck is a community of Mayan farmers sunlight filters through the dense tropical forest as a local musician entertains visiting journalists covering the U.N. Climate Summit, five hours and a world away in
6: Cancun.
3: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ikes Rieskandarajah, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Sammy Souza, and Emily Garrett.
2: Our interns are Nora Doyle Burr and Honda Lyles. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony.
3: Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
2: And I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Adios desde Cancun.
4: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies, Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org